Speeding up the transition. Breaking EU-Russian energy relations. Episode 57. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we speak with Professor Kasper Shulaski, who is a research professor at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs. Kasper is at the forefront of research in the broad area of energy transitions, geopolitics, and the social implications of the transition. As you'll hear, we have a wide-ranging discussion on the lead-up to Russia's war with Ukraine, and then we turn to the impact an EU energy system without Russia looks like. This episode is great for giving you a background to the development and integration of Russia's energy system We come around to the topic of energy security and how the Polish perspective may be a smart one to adopt for the rest of Europe. Yes, more LNG, more pipeline gas from Norway, but also a recognition that Russia is not a dependable supplier. That is, the energy as a means to push foreign policy needs to be countered by diversification, both supply sources, but also other technologies that can deliver heating for households. What I find so interesting about Casper's perspective is his ability to frame the energy transition as an ongoing project that can't be derailed by war. That is, our current efforts to build a non-fossil fuel energy system should move forward, but not be derailed or distracted from war and the imposition of sanctions on Russia. Yes, the flow of gas can be disrupted. We can even buy gas from other places. But by following the playbook laid down already by the EU, like filling up gas reserves in the summer with using LNG or pipeline gas from other regions, putting more money into renewables, more money into energy efficiency. Then, of course, we can exclude Russia from the gas system within the EU. We also delve into the topic of nuclear power and the role biomass can play as a replacement for gas. Overall, Casper doesn't provide predictions, which is definitely smart, but he provides both a historical account of the energy relations and then the emergence of a new energy order that was broken when Russia invaded Ukraine. In fact, we have a nice few words, I would say, about the role that Russia did play in the past, particularly over developing nuclear power uh, around the world, and what these previous gas relationships, how they developed with other European countries, how that actually did provide a, a good framing to make the energy transition. So there's a lot there, and there was a lot of good relationships built by Russia's involvement with the European energy system. And then now, as Casper points out, this, these past 60 years were just simply destroyed by Putin's war in Ukraine. But where we go now on this energy transition, this is what we discuss, and I really hope you find this episode useful. I know in my discussion with Casper, it really helped me frame kind of understanding how the energy system was both built with Russia, but also slightly undermined as well. And then now, how do we move forward without Russia? Enjoy listening now for this week's episode. We have Professor Kasper Shulaski, who is a research professor at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, who has published widely on the energy transition from climate policy, energy security, and governance, and who holds a deep understanding of the energy transition in Central Eastern Europe, and certainly the wider region and, and the EU. Casper, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Hi. This is great. And I know we've been trying for some time to <laughs> organize this. And 
the the timing of our interview and actually the war in Ukraine has been going on for two weeks definitely will influence our discussion uh, today. But my, my first question, and we can take this in our conversation in a, in a lot of different directions, but I just really just want to understand and ask a basic question is, why did you start to study energy and the energy sector as a whole? That's that's actually a trick question, I think, uh, in a way, um, because if you want the official version, <laughs> then that's because energy is this all-encompassing thing uh, that helps us understand and then also explain a lot that's going on in the political realm. Uh, though in reality, I started working on energy issues by chance because I had to pick a topic for a master's thesis. And I picked energy because, yeah, I mean, there I could go back to the official version then that I thought energy was interesting, but uh, that was not part of my studies at the time. Uh, I was doing my master's at the University of uh, the Free University of Amsterdam, and I was interested in things related to environmental governance, which is a really broad um, topic. And narrowing it down to, to energy and climate was, uh, as I say, something of a, of a coincidence initially, but then it really started steering most of my work uh, ever since, so for the past 15 years. What is it about this lens, maybe I'll call it a lens of energy, that, because you deal a lot with theory as well, that enables you to gain a deeper understanding? And I won't say in what areas, but, but how does... Uh, working with energy as a as a topic of study, expand out your understanding of how I would say international relations work, sociology, and and the environment. How how does that influence your research agenda? Well, yeah, I'm I'm a I have this dual identity as an IR uh, person, so international relations scholar and a sociologist. I did my masters in IR and PhD in sociology. And what energy does is brings in this layer of, of thinking in terms of socio-technical systems, uh, which is something that you know it's, it's, it borders on sociology and it can influence uh, our thinking about international politics. So for me, it's a really interesting addition that um, it's 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 good to have this um, slightly materialist uh, outlook, which is focused very much on infrastructures, on resources, and on the way this largest um, machine ever created by humanity, which is the energy system, uh, the way it actually influences our lives and the way it conditions um, our social relations, the way we think about politics and the way we do politics. I mean, a lot of the differences between certain political regimes can actually be explained, of course, not fully, but but at least partly, by energy policies or energy politics. Actually, better um, to say. Um, I mean, looking at the war in Ukraine right now, uh, we have a, a petrostate that has attacked um, uh, consolidating democracy, and the differences between Ukraine and Russia can actually be explained to a great extent by the role that energy plays in, in their economies and in their societies. So that's that's just an example of how uh, energy is really entering um, the way we, we think about social and political phenomena in different ways. 
maybe we'll build on that. We'll dive right into the, the Russia uh, issue. And from a sociological perspective, the social perspective, how, how do you get yeah, what you just mentioned about uh, an autocratic state, a petrol state, attacking a consolidated demo- consolidating democracy? How, how is that from, a I would say, a social perspective? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean that... Um... Russia is very dependent in its on I mean economically dependent on its energy resources in particular so we know that I mean uh, that varies between uh, different points in time because it depends on the oil price a lot uh, but hydrocarbons oil and gas uh, provide around a half sometimes more than a half of the budget of the Russian Federation and that means that this sector is really, really important for the way the state functions. Um, yet, um, oil and gas are fairly low labor-intensive um, sectors of the economy. So I've seen estimates that around 1% of the Russian population actually works directly in the oil and gas sector. And that already includes uh, not just the you know oil rig workers, those people who build and, and, and maintain pipelines, but also the oligarchs uh, who actually take most of the added value, and also the you know like security guards actually guarding the infrastructure. So one percent uh, of of the population, which means that um, a lot of the wealth uh, that is created in Russia is created by this tiny minority, and so that shapes the attitude of. The, the government or, or the elite towards the rest of the population, which is in a way, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate too much, but in a sense, it's irrelevant for them. So those people are there. I mean, you have to provide something for them. You have to cater for them. But the quality of services and the accountability of the government is not really what we know from democracies. You don't really need to tax your population because you have money from elsewhere. And if you don't tax your population, if the population doesn't feel this kind of ownership in the state, uh, it's, it's much easier for authoritarian regimes to develop. And, you know, in contrast, Ukraine is, is just so completely different because it doesn't have that resource premium that Russia has. It had a small one from transfer fees for, for gas being transferred through its territory. And that also actually fed, you know, I mean, part of that was, was uh, taken away by, by a much narrower elite of, of oligarchs. Um, but uh, Ukraine, to, to function as a state, it does need to tax its population, which is this nudge for, for democratization. And we've seen Ukraine making, you know, two steps forward, one step back. But since 2004, we've seen this gradual uh, drive towards a consolidated liberal democracy. Um, and of course, that's, that's very different from Russia and also against uh, the interest of the Russian elite, which, as you probably already see, partly can explain the, the, the war that is taking place. Maybe we could uh, talk about just a brief brief history of Ukraine. But I mean, at the break, time of breakup of the Soviet Union, the economic development was about equal with Poland. And but yet they've gone in two very different uh, directions and development wise. Maybe you could explain why why Poland was able to. Well, maybe don't dwell on Poland, but why 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 Ukraine 
kind of went off the rails when Poland went along with other Eastern European countries and joined the EU. I'm, I'm not an economist, so so it's hard for me to explain the, the details of that. But it's true what you say. I mean, we often uh, point to Ukraine as, as this example of uh, of a country or like a, a, a counterfactual case for um, the economic and political transition in Central Eastern Europe, exactly because of the, the reason that you mentioned that uh, Ukraine had almost the same starting point in terms of economics as Poland. I mean, Poland, of course, at the end of the 1980s was in a deep economic crisis. It was much uh, less developed and and, and poorer than uh, Czechoslovakia or Hungary. Uh, So in this sense, you know, Ukraine was not uh, starting from the same level as as those countries. So it's not the same for for all of Central Eastern Europe. Uh, But mm, certainly Poland didn't have this problem with with oligarchy it had a large problem with corruption but not on the scale that we know from post-soviet republics and it also had a very clear vision of um, eu accession at least from the mid 90s uh, which the ukraine which ukraine doesn't have uh, until now basically we we, we do have some symbolic politics around this but um, I mean, conditionality of EU accession has played a great role in Central and Eastern Europe in, in improving the quality of governance and also in uh, integrating the, the, the markets with EU economy, which also, of course, helped to develop those economies. I'd like to get to the impacts of the war, but I think before we get there, we have to talk about the European Union and relations uh, with Russia. And maybe we could talk about this building of the gas bridge. How did how did Russia become a petrol state, and one where countries in the EU, Germany, Austria, and certainly the former communist countries in the region, how did they become so dependent on on Russia for oil, coal, yeah, gas? How, how did this happen? I mean, this is a really long historical process because yeah. um, uh, if you visit Gazprom's website, I mean, I'm not sure if it's possible at the moment because Anonymous is, is doing a lot <laughs> to, to take it down uh, daily. But back in the day when it was still possible, uh, they, there's an interesting thing. Um, uh, Gazprom claims that it began trading with... Uh, Europe or actually making this international trade with gas. I think they say 1944. And the interesting thing is that, why 1944? Because there was a pipeline on the territory of Poland, uh, which, as you probably know, before the war uh, was stretching further to the east. So it uh, it also contained the territories which are now in, in Western Ukraine, Belarus, and, and Lithuania. And it had significant oil reserves in uh, the region of uh, Drohobych, Lviv, so Western um, Ukraine right now. And also there was some gas there. Whereas the Polish uh, industry was uh, in, in central Poland, there was this central industrial complex, which was built in the 1930s. And there was a pipeline that connected the oil and gas fields with uh, the industry in, in central Poland. And in 1944, when the Russian or the Red Army was advancing, uh, it actually 
took over those those territories and then the the border of Poland as we know it now was uh, delineated and suddenly the pipeline was uh, transmitting gas from what became the Soviet Union to Poland. Hence, the first international uh, trade in gas was conducted in 1944 when borders were moved. Uh, but this is, of course, I mean, this is just, just anecdotal. Uh, the really important thing was the discovery of, of the um, Siberian uh, oil and gas um, that took place in the 1950s and then in the 1960s the fields were developed. And because um, Europe, Western Europe was, was really hungry for energy, very quickly, um, I mean, they, they decided to uh, establish this trade relationship with the Soviet Union. And for that, this massive infrastructure of the first uh, gas pipeline uh, was developed. That started around 1967. Uh, initially, Austria was supposed to be the, the main hub. And I mean, to a large extent it was. But then Germany, after um, Chancellor uh, Willy Brandt, so the Social Democratic Chancellor, uh, took over in 1968 or 9, I don't remember now correctly. Um, he that, that was the moment that, where the German Ostpolitik was born. And an important element of that was uh, normalization of relations with Eastern Germany and also with the whole Eastern Bloc, especially with the Soviet Union. And the trade in energy um, suddenly became an opportunity for for uh, Western Germany to create a, a normal relationship with the Eastern Bloc countries, uh, which Brandt believed would lead to eventual, perhaps eventual democratization through contact and, and, and kind of uh, de-escalation of the conflict. Um, and in a in a sense that worked because this um, trade in, in natural gas has continued uninterrupted i mean we had this thing called the second cold war or this um, <clears throat> nuclear crisis in 1983 uh, where 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 cold war superpowers were on the brink of a, of a nuclear war and yet at the time uh, gas was still flowing. It was flowing during the Polish crisis, so when solidarity was uh, uh, thwarted by by the Polish military, uh, so I mean it was unproblematic all the way until the Soviet Union fell. And then actually, of course, people were worried, but still those relations were maintained. The Soviet Ministry of of um, Energy, I don't remember the, the actual name, was turned into what we now know as Gazprom. So Gazprom is the, the, the direct heir of uh, the ministerial institutions of the Soviet Union. And Gazprom was charged with, with maintaining this international trade. So that's that's the, the gas story. Uh, with oil, um, it's fairly similar because there's also an important pipeline, the, the Friendship Pipeline, that uh, supplied oil to all the satellite states of the Soviet Union. Uh, and it still does, actually. It works right now. So although... Um, Russian oil is not reaching the market uh, via tankers because nobody wants to buy it. Uh, the gas, I mean, the, the oil through the pipelines is still flowing, uh, even though there's a war going on. So, you know, this relationship is, is it goes back several decades and it has been argued, and I think it's true, so it's really difficult to argue with, uh, that it was uh, a collaborative 
uh, endeavor and from the perspective of uh, uh, Western European powers and Western European companies, it's been working quite well. Um, the first cracks uh, began to show in 2006 and then in 2009 when there were gas conflicts between uh, Russia and, and Ukraine. And that's kind of the origin of the Nord Stream pipeline idea. Do, do you think this um, Russian break with Ukraine, so Nord Stream uh, 2, okay, Nord Stream 1, but then Nord Stream 2, and also going through the southern corridor through Turkey and then up through uh, Serbia and, and Hungary, which the connection was just finished a few months ago. Do you, do you think this repositioning of, I would say, pipelines and energy infrastructure for Russia enabled was was long in the it was long in the making? But do you think this conflict with Ukraine was also long in the making? This military conflict. Um, well. You know that was a hypothesis that a lot of people were were uh, offering that the moment gas is going to stop flowing through Ukraine because of those uh, alternative routes like like the Nord Stream and the South Stream, um, at that moment Russia is going to enter Ukraine. Um, well, you know I don't know what to say about this because gas is still fro- flowing through Ukraine. And yet, there's a there's a full scale war going on. So, in this sense, I think that it was uh, not true. Of course, I mean the, the real purpose for Russia was first of all to um, strip Ukraine of uh, an important source of uh, money. I mean, the transfer fees for for gas uh, constitute a, a significant part of the budget of Ukraine. Uh, and then the other thing was simply uh, to have, uh, well, good trade relationships with those end uh, users. So mostly Germany, but also all the countries. I mean, Hungary is, is, and Serbia are playing an important role here right now in, in terms of also Russian propaganda uh, or, or just PR, if you want, uh, around the war. Uh, so with those uh, energy interdependencies, come relationships uh, more on the diplomatic level, which turn out to be important as a, a tool for, for Russian soft power uh, at moments like this. So you mentioned the soft power uh, and how this has been built over time, where the EU, or we could just say yeah, Germany, Austria, these member states of the EU have relied on this relationship, this this relationship that's been developed in cooperation, thinking that you could they could tie these energy resources together and the cash flow, and we have peace in Europe. How much, um, yeah, how much does this invasion, this war with Ukraine from Russia, change the dynamics now since February 24th? What, what kind of new world are we living in? I mean, it changes almost everything. Um, Russia has managed to just erase those, what is it, six, almost six decades of uh, a peaceful and, and fruitful collaboration uh, just in a matter of, of, of weeks, days. Um, I mean, as we speak, the European Union is taking steps to reduce its um, dependence on Russian gas by two thirds. Um, and I mean, the EU is also dependent on Russian oil. Uh, but this is more flexible, so this is something that can be replaced in a shorter period. Um, 
paradoxically, the EU is also um, dependent on Russian uh, coal. I say paradoxically because Poland is, is said to be this, you know, coal country in, in the EU. And I mean, Germany is also an important coal producer and, and consumer. But a lot of that coal, especially in Poland, actually comes from Russia. And some of that coal actually comes from Donbass, so the occupied eastern Ukraine. Um, and, and this is something which is inexplicable, really, uh, and just shows how um, energy relations have been under our political radar for such a long time that, I mean, things are going on, but we don't really touch the, the energy stuff and we don't look into that. And this is, has its own dynamics. But now it seems that it has changed. Uh, this gradual process of securitizing energy relations have has been taking place since 2006, uh, but uh, the EU was was largely divided on this. So Central Eastern European countries, or actually just some Central Eastern European countries, were proponents of of a more security focused approach to energy relations, uh, whereas many countries in in Western Europe. Uh, were more preoccupied with, with other priorities, so especially um, economic and sustainability-related, climate-related. And on the other hand, there was also a very stark difference in understandings of energy security, how it is achieved and what it really implies. So if you look at Poland and Germany as two really ideal, typical cases of very different approaches to energy security, Poland was emphasizing they need to diversify away from Russia or actually just focusing on Russia at a very geopolitical approach to this. Whereas Germany was saying, well, actually energy security <coughs> uh, through uh, interdependence. So if you are actually, if you have robust trade relationships, ideally with many partners, but you can have it with, with one main partner, then you're going to be safe because the, the point is to have a lot of cheap energy resources. And now Germany is pivoting away from this. Um, so, so that's a big, big change. Yeah, there's definitely a division within uh, Eastern Europe or Central Eastern European EU member states. But could we say uh, maybe more broadly that the other countries in the EU, particularly the, the Western countries, the old member states, are adopting, I would say, maybe this Northern European, Polish, Baltic position of understanding that Russia does use or can use energy as a, as a political weapon to kind of force their positions in places. Is this becoming kind of the e adopted EU perspective now? It seems so. It seems so. And I mean, there was never unity within Central Eastern Europe on this. Uh, so um, import dependence on Russian, especially gas, was never really the ideal kind of explanatory factor for uh, attitudes towards Russia and, and uh, perspectives on energy. So if you looked at, uh, let's say, Poland and Slovakia, Slovakia was much more dependent in terms of how much gas, I mean, it was taking all its gas from Russia. Uh, Poland had some indigenous uh, gas resources, then it built uh, an LNG terminal. It was also trading with, like, taking gas from the West through Germany. And yet, it was Poland that was voicing all those concerns, whereas Slovakia or and Hungary, right now, were not. So, so uh, Viktor Orban has said earlier today that he is not going to support sanctions on Russia in the energy sector. Um, 
so in a sense, you know, we always talk about Central Eastern Europe or the V4, so the Visegrad group. Uh, but in reality, this was a platform that was really consolidated and important in the early 2000s, late 90s, when all those countries worked together to join the European Union and NATO. But once they actually joined, I think that this group was, was becoming looser and looser and conflicts of interests and, and differences in perspective were becoming more evident. For instance, the Czechs, they were never really against the Nord Stream pipeline. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and that was supposed to be something that united uh, the region, whereas it was really only an issue for, for the Baltic states and Poland. Slovakia, for example, is really interesting that they continue to rely on, on Russian gas. And maybe that, that would be the good question to ask, which would uncover some areas. Why, why would Slovakia stay connected and still have, be heavily reliant on Russian gas? Slovakia has, I mean, things have changed in the past couple of years, of course. Slovakia has a very serious plan for decarbonization with nuclear. Um, and uh, of course, gas is not as important for, for that development as it is for Poland, for instance, uh, since I mean, until recently, Poland envisaged uh, an increase in gas consumption of at least two hundred percent in the next ten years, so like a threefold increase in uh, in the use of gas. Uh, so of course, you know, it's it's not just how dependent you are in terms of the percentage of of gas imports from Russia, but also how much gas you plan to use and how important that is in your overall um, energy mix and also in what sectors. So how uh, replaceable it is. Is it heating more or is it more in the electricity sector? So in this sense, Slovakia now is just not as, I mean, this is not such an important issue for Slovakia as it is for some other countries. Um, But there was also always more like an ideological or ideational difference there. So for the Slovaks, um, the relationship with Russia was never as charged historically as it is for for the Poles. So you cannot really understand it without also this this kind of cultural, social cultural um, element. And then in Poland, I mean, relations with Russia have been tense for a variety of reasons. Uh, But since 2005, 2006, you can really see a change also in, in the Polish understanding of energy security and the way Russia is being perceived. Uh, in the 1990s, when the Yamal uh, pipeline was developed, which is that's a pipeline that goes through Belarus and Poland. Uh, so that was something that turned Poland into uh, a transit state. And back in the 1990s, Polish uh, politicians welcomed this development as something that actually increases Poland's energy security because being a transit state of course makes you a much more important player Uh, and now today uh, we are talking about uh, discontinuing the Yamal contract so that no gas is going to flow through the Yamal pipeline anymore and that's uh, of course a major uh, pivot. Mm -hmm. But wasn't the issue with Yamal that it didn't really, at a large scale, continue on to Germany, so it was never fully completed. Uh, yeah, I mean, there there are interconnectors now, and of course that's not such a big problem. I mean, the, the, 
the contract uh, that was signed by Poland uh, for taking the Yamal gas was really, uh, how should I say, asymmetric in terms of uh, the, the costs and benefits. So it was very beneficial for Russia. Uh, the, the transit fees for Poland uh, were low. The, it was built on this uh, uh, take-or-pay uh, principle, meaning that Poland had to take the gas, uh, no matter if it, you know, if it needed it or not. So in this sense, of course, it was a really bad contract, and that's also a reason why it's it, it was supposed to be renegotiated. And now it's it's kind of broken. I think it's also part of negotiations. We'll see what happens, because really at the moment. Um, EU institutions, uh, as well as member states, are in something of a extraordinary mode of, of governance, uh, where um, Russian energy resources are being heavily securitized and treated as something that we really want to get rid of in the short term as well. And that's a major, major shift because we wanted to get rid of gas in our energy mixes anyway. But that, I mean, the perspective there was 2050 and now we're talking about 2025. Actually, maybe Poland turns out to be a good example for the EU because they invested in LNG. So at least one facility for LNG and then also uh, building interconnectors and a pipeline to Norway as well for Norwegian gas. And now, but Germany is going to build an LNG, and Norway is seen as a source to replace Russian gas. Yes, I mean here here in Oslo, where I'm based, uh, the the uh, everyone's worried that Norway just simply doesn't have the production capacity to not only fulfill the, uh, the I mean the expectations that have arisen right now because of the geopolitical shifts. But even uh, that it's not going to have enough production to fill the Baltic pipe uh, pipeline with, uh, which, which connects it to Poland. Um, so, you know, things, uh, we're at an intersection, a historical juncture, and it's really difficult to anticipate what's going to happen. Uh, a week ago, it still seemed um, unlikely that we're going to break up those energy relations. And now, you know, the US and UK have issued uh, uh, an embargo on, on Russian oil and the European Commission is openly speaking about uh, a, well a roadmap of um, for for getting less dependent on Russian gas and also other Russian resources because we also still have to remember about the coal part and also that Russia is a major player in the nuclear sector and not so much in Europe but I mean it is still important for Hungary, for Slovakia, for Bulgaria. It was important for the Czech Republic, but after this uh, whole debacle with uh, with the ammunition depot being blown up and that was connected with uh, uh, Russian intelligence operatives, the Rosatom was actually removed from the list of uh, possible uh, contractors for, for the expansion of the Temelin um, nuclear power plant. Mm-hmm. Wait, uh, I, I vaguely remember. What was the, the depot blow-up? I mean, that, that took place uh, many years ago, around the 2014 uh, war in, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, but it was treated as an accident until last year. Um, traces were found that actually led to the same 
people who were involved in the Skripal um, assassination attempt. Um, and after that, there was a, you know, a huge controversy in the Czech Republic, even though both the Prime Minister, Babish, and uh, the President, Zeman, uh, were very pro-Russian. They instantly said that uh, because of those security concerns, Rosatom is not going to be uh, considered for such an important you know, like a strategic infrastructure as the Temelin uh, nuclear power plant. So we can actually look back, and I was just on a call with some colleagues in the UK, and they brought in the, the poisoning there. And yeah, we can see that Russia has been quite active internationally in taking, not waging war, but taking these, I don't know, what, what's, the, what's the name of it? Like taking these steps to undermine and to eliminate critics or to uh, remove assistance for other countries uh, in a very systematic way, which is a bit scary in hindsight now, l- looking at that. I-, I wanted to maybe go a bit more on the nuclear power. Um, and do you, do you, because this was a big area for cooperation for Russia internationally, uh, and do you think Russian, because, yeah, a lot of the discussion is about Russian gas and oil and cutting that off, but what about this nuclear, um, nuclear power internationally, like in Turkey, for example, or I believe in India as well? Do you, do you think this area of cooperation is all done as well? Well, you know, Russia is the largest player on the global nuclear uh, technology market. So Rosatom has been very active in the, the last 10 years, especially, and it has several uh, ongoing projects and a lot of, uh, well, projects in on different stages of, of development from uh, just memoranda of understanding being signed to... Uh, projects which are somewhere, you know, in, in blueprint phase. And as you said, uh, Turkey is an important country, uh, so is Egypt, Bangladesh, um, India not so much. I mean, there's a project there as well. There was supposed to be a large project in South Africa, but there was a, a massive uh, scandal uh, regarding corruption uh, reaching up to the presidential level. Uh, and that was the biggest contract in terms of, uh, of, of the, the budget. For, for Rosatom. But uh, Rosatom is still the, the largest player in Africa. Um, it's also present in South America and in, in South Asia and Southeast Asia, uh, and also Middle East and North Africa. So it's really big. Uh, the problem for Russia right now, which we might not be able to really comprehend at the moment yet, but I think it's going to be important, is that, well, Rosatom was was um, getting a lot of its uh, competitive advantage from being what people called a, a one-stop shop in nuclear technology. So you had everything there. You just had one company and a bunch of kind of satellite and sister companies that was able to provide everything from the initial know-how on project development through financing, building, and then even operating, and then actually take you know fueling and taking away the used fuel. So this was an amazing uh, and very attractive setup for a lot of countries that do not have experience with nuclear technology or just don't have the capacity to actually develop that. And Russia was building on some of the connections that were already established during the Soviet era. So, you know, that during uh, Cold War times, a lot of students from uh, the then so-called third world 
uh, were coming to study at, at Soviet universities. And they would then come back. And of course, you know, they maintained some kind of a relationship. Some of them would speak Russian or they would at least have a very positive attitude towards uh, Russia. And they, I mean, Russians were able to maintain those contacts and then use them and now expand them because now they're also uh, creating training programs for uh, foreign uh, nuclear specialists. So that was an important element of this kind of global nuclear diplomacy that Russia had. The problem right now is that a lot of those projects were to, supposed to be financed by Russian uh, credit. So that Russian banks were issuing loans for those really expensive projects to be developed, and then they would be paid back. Uh, well, there are different schemes, but for instance, through the sales of electricity over time, less for 20, 30 years. Uh, the shape <laughs> in which Russian banks are right now is, well, not great. And we might anticipate that the Russian economy is just going to collapse within a matter of, in a matter of, of weeks. So for sure, there's going to be a, a problem for the Russian banks to actually finance those projects, how they're going to do it, where they're going to actually get, get the funding. Uh, well, we'll see. So, But I think that this is going to be a major problem for, for Russia. It's going to have the, the, the know-how. It has the hardware. It has the, the technology to offer. But how it's going to finance it, that's going to be a big problem. Maybe we turn to Central Eastern Europe again, or just all of Eastern, I'm thinking Romania, Bulgaria as well, which has this Russian technology or Soviet technology for nuclear power. Does this then maybe for the region really, and the Czechs, I guess, are turning away, were turning away from Russia for nuclear power. But does this open up the, this region for other suppliers for nuclear technology rather than, rather than the Russians now? Yes. Yes, it does. Uh, although, again, there's going to be some issues with, for instance, fuel uh, deliveries. Although this is not a major problem, Ukraine had that uh, problem with its own uh, nuclear power fleet. Uh, it had to, well, make some technological changes so that it could actually bring in uh, uranium from, from other sources like, like the US or Canada. Um, but if you look at Poland, uh, who wants to, or at least plans to, build its first nuclear power plant, the, the options considered are uh, French, uh, American, Korean, and Japanese. So those are actually the alternatives. Um, and and of course, the Westinghouse, uh, the, the American company, uh, Areva, EDF, the French, uh, they are very eager to get some contracts because, I mean, Westinghouse has not built anything since 2007. It actually went bust in the meantime. Yes. Uh, so, so I, I thought, yeah, they got bought by somebody else, but okay. Yeah, yes. I mean, they, they, were, they were bankrupt and then they were bought and uh, now Poland's plans to develop up to nine gigawatts capacity in nuclear. Uh, that's a major cake of which uh, all the, the major players want to have a, a slice. Um, and, I mean, Koreans have not really built anything much either, but everybody is eager to show that they can. 
uh, since Rosatom is obviously off the table. It has been for Poland uh, before, and it's of course also off the table for all the other uh, Central Eastern European, and also I mean, let's not forget Finland. Finland has also had uh, yes, cha- yes. links to, to Rosatom for, for many years. And may- maybe uh, we, we broaden this out, and I'm aware of the time too, is, so th- does this conf- conflict, does this war, because it changes so many things, uh, from the European Union perspective, this energy transition towards a, a cleaner, we'll just say a cleaner energy system, low carbon, zero carbon, net zero by 2050, all that's being sped up. Do you, do you think this is actually the case? Do you think this acceleration can occur in the energy sector away from fossil fuels? Well, as I said, we entered this extraordinary or, or mode of governance right now. So people are willing to make political decisions that were completely off the table before. And importantly, societies at the moment are or seem to be willing to take on increased costs, even though the cost of energy right now in Europe, in all sectors, are extremely high. Uh, but now this you know, kind of war economy uh, narrative is uh, something that we can still build on to make decisions that will impact the future trajectories for the energy transition. And of course, I mean, this can go different in different directions. Uh, there were voices in Italy, in, in Germany, and also in Poland that, okay, perhaps we should just extend the life, lifetime or actually come back to coal if gas as a transition fuel is off the table. Uh, but the European Commission has now uh, went on a sort of a, a policy offensive, uh, trying to steer the whole process towards uh, an accelerated decarbonization. So, like uh, like I said, we wanted to get rid of gas in the longer term. So, how about we try actually finding substitutes for gas already now, and biogas, biomethane. Um, hydrogen, well, that's still largely theoretical, but uh, probably biomass is going to be an important element here. Uh, let's hope it's sustainable. Uh, and then, I mean, there's revisions of, of all policy uh, plans. So nuclear is again reconsidered by, by some countries that were uh, heading for a phase out. So Belgium, uh, which wanted to build its uh, system on uh, gas and renewables now actually is considering the extension of, of lifetime for its uh, nuclear fleet. And even in Germany, there were voices that um, nuclear reactors should either be used for a longer period or perhaps even some of those reactors that were uh, switched off last year should go back online, which is unlikely because it's actually going to be difficult technically and, and very costly. Do you think this high gas... Okay, so we have the political considerations about this transition, but do you think it's just the sheer high price of gas that's going to force diversification to other resources or technologies? Yeah, it seems so. I mean, high prices of not just gas, but all fossil fuels. I mean, oil has just hit a historic record, and coal is also very, very, very expensive. And if you add uh, high prices on the ETS of the ETS certificate, so the emission trading uh, system of the EU, um, then it turns out that fossil fuels are simply uh, very, a very 
dubious uh, direction for for investment, and renewables are getting uh, this this competitive advantage. Uh, so it seems now that, that you know people who have invested in um, you know like a home PV facilities, so photovoltaic, so solar energy or a heat pump or something like this and they were anticipating that those things are going to become really paying off begin to pay off in eight nine ten years looking at energy prices right now they see that that was actually a fantastic investment because they might be paid off in three years uh, and then it's just going to be pure profit um, mm -hmm. so so those actually the, 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 the small scale uh, is going to be important here because a lot of the dependence that Europe has on gas from Russia is in the heating sector and the building sector, so homes. Uh, and the easiest way out of this is first through thermal modernization uh, to decrease the, the, the need for, for heating uh, with gas, uh, increase energy efficiency, uh, and then to substitute gas with something else. Electrification uh, and the use of heat pumps is, of course, uh, an important way. Um, and this should be the, the easiest way to shave off this peak of gas consumption that we see in Europe every winter. And that's already going to be an important uh, achievement. Maybe I won't make this the final, final question, but I just I really want to get your opinion over the long-term or medium-term, even short-term perspective of this war, of Russia's war against Ukraine how do you see this developing over the next, I don't know, few weeks, or however you want to answer that? Like, what's what's your thought on this war? You mean the war itself? The war itself, yeah. Well, I really don't want to make any predictions because I I have to admit, uh, I'll do it publicly, that I didn't see it coming. So I didn't believe that Putin is going to invade Ukraine. I thought that it was uh, a negotiation strategy. And I still think, and actually... In this sense, I think we, we have been proven right that it was a bad idea for Russia to, to invade. Russia has probably not anticipated that it's going to go so badly, uh, that the invasion is going not according to the plan, and also that the response of um, the Western countries is much stronger than anyone could have anticipated. I mean... If Putin was afraid of NATO, then uh, it's going to have uh, NATO units all around the Russia on, on the borders. And then the German uh, historic uh, break with, with the Ostpolitik and actually a shift towards a, a much harsher uh, stance, remilitarization in a way. This is something that also wasn't, you know, in something that nobody has really considered uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, but it's really difficult to, to make predictions on the war. I mean, I'm not an expert on, on military affairs. Uh, in some way, it seems that because Russia is not succeeding, that it might actually end badly for, for the Putin regime. Um, I hope that happens. And I do think that... Russia has an important role to play in Europe. Uh, this is unpopular in a sense, and I, I'm hearing voices, um, not just in Poland, but in many places, that even if Russia democratizes, we shouldn't really trust her as a partner, 
and that this kind of relationship of, of animosity should be maintained. I think that, I mean, this is just extending the Cold War in a, like indefinitely. And this is something that we have been doing. Um, and of course, that that's not the way to, to actually get rid of of uh, this never-ending conflict within Europe. Although, of course, you know, the, the first thing to do is that this, this war has to be stopped, that Russia has to back out of Ukraine. Uh, it is going to have to pay, you know, some reparations to, to Ukraine for sure. Uh, I mean, in an ideal case, because, of course, we, we don't really know how this war is going to, is going to end. Um, but before situation normalizes and before Russia can actually compensate to Ukraine and then normalize its relations with Ukraine, uh, Europe has to maintain pressure on Russia as it is doing now. And I know that it hurts. I know that uh, the sanctions are going to hit the Russian population as a whole. But, well, sorry. I mean, the Russians are not the ones who are sitting in bomb shelters with their kids right now. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And Casper, uh, uh, maybe the final question is, uh, what's your research agenda going forward? Because th for me, at least, thing, yeah, the world is completely different from what I was doing uh, past in, in February, early February, to, to what's the discussion now. So how are you approaching and are you adjusting your research agenda based on these events? Uh, well, um, I'm doing a lot right now on, on international climate governance. And although... It uh, seems like something that is no longer, you know, a top priority. And climate change is not going to go away because there's because there's a war. Uh, so in this sense, I think that in the longer term, we, we will still have to look at those issues, like how do we actually reach net zero by 2050? And the European Green Deal is going to be an important element of this, even if it's going to be adjusted because of the of the need to focus on on. Uh, import dependence uh, in the short term. Uh, we do have a project here at the Norwegian Institute for International Affairs uh, on the geopolitics of the energy transition. So in this sense, we, you know, there's a lot of material for, for, for new research and it does change a lot. At the same time, it also accelerates some things that we have been thinking about or anticipating already before. So the very, very high fossil fuel prices are going to have an impact. Um, the question of raw materials for renewables, so rare earth metals, for instance, the availability of all those materials, this is going to be really an important priority question right now. Because if we are going to uh, deploy renewables at a, at, a, at a quicker pace in Europe, we have to get the materials for that from somewhere. And this, of course, opens up a whole new set of interdependencies and asymmetrical trade relations with certain countries, China, to main, mention just one. Of course, China is going to be, uh, well, right now it's just sitting back and watching, uh, but but we'll, we'll see how this relation also goes uh, in the future. So, you know, the future is uncertain. Uh, the situation is dynamic. Um, and we, we, as you say, we have to adjust our research and this to that. But in the, the longer run, I still think that, you know, climate uh, change mitigation is a top priority. Uh, so, so we should not forget about this, even 
if at the moment it sounds almost cynical to, to say that when there's a war going on and, and civilians are being targeted. Casper, thank you for, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting-edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.